Reducing Crime features conversations with influential thinkers in the police service and leading crime and policing researchers. Ken Pease, OBE, is a British crime prevention legend and the pioneer who directed the Kirkholt Repeat Burglary Prevention Project. We discussed not only that, but also his time teaching in Canada, having his class bombed by the provisional IRA, repeat victimization, and misleading government graphics. Welcome to Reducing Crime. I'm Jerry Ratcliffe. 25 years ago, Ken Pease was awarded an OBE, more formally named an Officer of the Order of the British Empire, for services to crime prevention, and he continues to contribute to the field. Now approaching his 80th year, Ken Pease has been an important voice in British crime prevention for half a century. He's a previous head of the Home Office Police Research Group and currently a visiting professor at University College London, the University of Manchester and Huddersfield University. In the 1980s, Ken directed the Kirkholt Repeat Burglary Prevention Project, later described as the most important crime prevention project ever undertaken. This pioneering research into repeat victimisation produced what has been described as a paradigm shift in our understanding of crime and how to respond to it. In 2013, he received the Ronald Clark Ecker Award for Contributions to Environmental Criminology and a Feshrift, that's a collection of essays written by colleagues in his honour, was published in 2007. His most recent book, Self-Selection Policing, was written with Jason Roach and published in 2016. As is obligatory round his way, I popped over to Ken's house in Stockport, just outside Manchester, for a cup of tea. We also moaned about the weather, and Huddersfield, sorry Huddersfield, and in true British fashion, complained about the government. So I try not to make the podcast about me. You know, it's my chance to catch up with other people who've done a lot fucking more than I have. And when I say people have done a lot more than I have, you know, I'm basically saying you're just older than I am, right? Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. <laughs> in which case, I've done more than almost everybody in the world. <laughs> when did you start in all this game? Uh, I started doing something entirely different. Did my psychology and then did stuff on child pedestrian education and behaviour. Three years of that... I made more difference in those three years than I have in the 50 years since. Then I got recruited into the Home Office and then I went off to do forensic psychology stuff mm -hmm. and then the boring academic life after that. I mean, the Max Secure place in Saskatoon was the place that I got most of my forensic psychology practical stuff from. So it's funny, it was like yourself, Gloria Laycock, Ron Clark, all started in correctional institutions. It's got to be more than coincidence, oh, right? Absolutely. I think it's the psychology thing as well. It's the psychology then, that background. How did a northern lad like you end up in Saskatoon, of all places, in Canada? I got recruited into the Regional Psychiatric Centre in Saskatoon, which is the Broadmoor of the Prairies. <laughs> is that their advertising? No, it's not. It's just what people say they are, though. The secure mental health facility of the Prairies, great. I love Saskatchewan. It's where Kim Rossmo was born, by the way. Really? Yeah. It's a lovely place. The people are fabulous. You know, kind, gentle. If it wasn't for the fact that it's the windswept north and it's probably snow 90% of the year, you make well, it sound very attractive. The accurate description of the Saskatoon climate was... 11 months winter, one month poor skiing was the way they described it. Very nice. And then how long were you there? Uh, six years. Manchester kept my job open for that period. Six years? Yeah, yeah. And I mean, so you came back to what? Then went another second, went two years in Belfast. During the Troubles, the IRA targeted my class and succeeded a month after I'd left. In what way? 
killed them, killed three guys. They, 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 bombed, they bombed the class. What was your class? It was, it was cops. It was IUC cops. I mean, it was really sitting ducks on the campus. After the three guys died, one took almost a year to die. It was an awful, awful oh, situation. God. They then sort of completely withdrew from the university and they were back, you know, completely at Garneville. Garneville was the secure training facility, wasn't That's it? That's right. The way it was done, it was a bomb behind, you know, the, the thing in front of radiators? Mm-hmm. Well, the sort of, well, it's the shield type thing, what you call yeah. it. They undid that and put the bomb behind that. What was the class? What were they learning? They were, they were doing a certificate in police management or something like that. They were, they were frontline cops. But this must have been the uh, 1970s? It was. One of the things about Ulster is, is the incredible sort of cruel sense of humour that people have got. On the Gabe Lens, you know, the, the paintings that you have on Gabe Lens. I've been around uh, West Belfast and all yeah. the murals. It's quite a thing. That was the two years, and I came back to Manchester and then stupidly changed. I should have stayed at Manchester for the rest of my career, really, but there you go. And then you went to? I went to Huddersfield. Why did I go to Huddersfield? So this is, this is almost a therapy session because that was a most stupid decision. I dated a lass in Huddersfield once. There was one decent pub, the Vulcan, did a nice lunch on a Sunday. I mean, that was about it, really. There's not much else going on there. Well, some good chippies in, in Huddersfield. <laughs> there you go, that's a selling point. So you let me get the, the chronology of this right. So you were starting to work in kind of police leadership stuff way back in like the 80s then. Yeah. That's a strange transition from sort of forensic psychology to police leadership. Well, I'm not sure I'd characterise it as police leadership. It was certainly trying to do stuff. I found frontline cops more congenial than police leaders, frankly. Because it, because they saw the relevance of it? Absolutely. And you could actually have a conversation as well. And, and yes, I had more in common with them. It's strange to me that you've got more receptivity from the frontline cops. What happens to police initiatives, particularly those introduced by frontline cops? You've got a phrase, haven't you? The like phrase to... is killing the cubs because the lioness takes up with a lion who is not the father of her cubs. The new boyfriend, the first action is to kill the cubs. And that is a common feature of what happens when you get a transition of authority in police divisions, BCUs or whatever. Because in the lion world, you need to make sure that your offspring are the ones that are exactly. looked after and thrive and survive exactly you have no genetic investment in the in the cubs that the that your partner had before you came on the scene yeah whenever i introduce the topic or the phrase to police audiences there is almost always laughter oh they all recognize that exactly you know it's the only way to get promoted right there's no way you can carry on with the same initiatives as the previous people exactly you could bring your own bullshit in exactly once upon a time there was an excellent initiative based on optimal foraging ideas there was an initiative with frontline cops involved, which was successful to the extent that it got a Goldstein Award. These guys did a terrific job. Burglary went down substantially. They were revising the thing when management changed and the scheme was killed and the guy who led it, who was an inspector, went and retired because he couldn't cope with it. And his nearest collaborator, who was an analyst, he went and often got a job with victim support because he couldn't cope with it either. In other words... They had this really great initiative, absolutely just killed off by new management. It was killed off by new management. And six months later, I happened to be in headquarters of that same force and got talking to two analysts. Then I said, oh, so you're taking on the work of John and Trevor. And they said, who? In other words, it took less than a year for the success to be essentially written out of the corporate memory of that organisation. And how many years had it been running for and been successful? About, about three. And then it just got erased from the memory? Exactly. Honestly, I could have wept that occasion. 
And it's that notion of the failure of continuity across changes of management that I think has seen more good ideas binned, you know, good practices binned. Anyway, there you go. I'm going to start blubbing if we carry on like this. (laughs) How do you stop that happening? Where have there been successes in terms of changing policy? I mean, your work for the last, it's got to be the last 40 years, has been involved in thinking about, especially policy and policy around repeat victimisation. There have been successes. There have. How many fingers have you got? Well, I mean, you you did some of the pioneering work in repeat victimisation. How did you get into that? Actually, it's through Gloria Laycock. She was head of the Prime Prevention Unit. Um, We talked about burglary and I got some dosh from her to try and reduce burglary in what was then the most burgled area of Greater Manchester. Was this like a proper grant or did she just give you a whole pile of money in an envelope? No, the envelope wasn't brown. And when we looked at it, we found that the best predictor of victimisation was victimisation. And at the same time, slightly later, we did an uh, analysis, which I think is probably the thing I'm proudest of, which was the demonstration that hotspots are hotspots more because of repeat victimisation than they are because of prevalence of victimisation. Yeah. In the area that we, we were working in, in Greater Manchester, if you started in January and were totally successful and if you just prevented repeats, by the time you got to December, you'd be down to less than half of the burglary. I mean, I think this is a point that's lost on so many people. When they think about hotspots policing, they're just too quickly rushed to, oh, we're going to go out and do saturation patrol. Exactly. They don't do enough thinking about the analysis, which is, do you have a problem of lots and lots of places being targeted because they're all vulnerable yeah. or a few people being hit again yeah. and again and again because yeah, the solutions are going to be completely different well, exactly i want to kiss your feet on the basis of saying that because it's absolutely true the bulk of hotspot analyses are of the kind that you describe well i think people kind of go oh we've got a hotspot and then they just immediately go to what are we going to do about it and i'm like oh, hold on a minute we haven't finished the analysis we've just started it a map of crime hotspots isn't the end of analysis it's the beginning Absolutely correct. The way I do it when I'm talking to cops mm-hmm. is to say, okay, you've got a hotspot, it's identified. Go and stand in the middle of the hotspot, what are you going to do next? The next, of course, is analytically driven right. to find out how predictable events are specifically within the hotspot area. Yeah. But if you actually were focusing on repeat victimisation, repeats and near repeats of the kind that you produced a brilliant measure to quantify. Oh, it was... Uh people like Mike Tansley and Shane Johnson. But I think, you know, you mentioned near repeats. I think it's something that people don't pay enough attention to that, which is that increased likelihood that, you know, if your house gets burgled, it's not just that your house is at increased risk of being burgled, but now your neighbours are at an increased risk for the next few weeks or the next few days, your immediate neighbours, because that, that that kind of contagious risk. Yeah. It's something that not, not, I don't think enough people appreciate the value of understanding that. Excellent. Tell you what, you do the rest of this podcast, you're absolutely right. <laughs> because you said all the, all the right things, honestly, you have. I think it's Shane and Kate, one of the things that they demonstrate was this notion of, in a semi-detached house, it's, the, if you like, the same side. So if, if you're on the left hand of a semi, then it's not the other half of the same building that is most um, risk afterwards. It's the equivalent half of the pair of houses just next to you. So it's- and that's some of the work. I mean, I think the work of Shane Johnson and Kate Bowers, one of the power couples of British criminology, Absolutely. for sure, has really been interesting. And, and, and just to get down to this micro level of thinking about, and I think John Eck does this work too, about thinking about specific individual properties. 
you know, I think people think far too much about neighbourhoods. It's like, no, tell me about the, the homes, the individual homes, the, that, that, the homes on the street corner, right, on the intersection. I want to know about those individual places. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely true. Coming back to this notion about successes, uh, and we were talking about successes, the repeat victimisation stuff became a key performance indicator for British police way back in the, I think, the 90s, wasn't okay. it? Or late 80s? We published a paper a few years ago, Dan Ignatans and I, called Whatever Happened to Repeat Victimisation. To give an example, on the Crime Prevention Toolkit of the College of Policing, there isn't a repeat victimisation element in that. So it's, it's disappeared. Nowhere to be found? Nowhere to be found on the Crime Reduction Toolkit. So um, using the conventional mapping software, um, is it does not major, if you like, on the very specific stuff we're talking about. And also, when it's, when it's dots on a map rather than bricks on a building, then you don't see things in the same way. I think about the analysts need to get out of the office more and go and stare at the actual crime hotspots a bit more. Yeah. In one of your books, what I take to be the message is that executives have more to change about the way they do things than do the analysts themselves. Well, I'm glad you managed to read between the lines because that was the intent, but I didn't want to clearly say. And I think this is the uh, one of the reasons that I wanted to come and talk to you, which is what are the messages that executives need to be taking away to make the lasting change that you hope they signed up to do the job? I'm a Bayesian, right, in terms of the way of thinking. In other words, I, I adhere not to the conventional frequentist modes of analysis of things it's common sense where you do something and then you have a look at what you've done and you change your mind slightly and carry on doing something and if it and if it gets better then great you move towards it or move away from it the bayesian approach as reflected is you have your feet held to the fire in terms of you've got to make a prediction about something yeah then when you see how close the prediction is to what actually happens, then you revise it and try and work out what happened. And the best predictors were the ones who were keen to make changes on the basis of, of the discrepancy between their predictions and what actually happened. In other words, it's a way of doing things which is completely different from the sort of conventional RCT type approach. It says people should predict something, see what happens, adjust what they do, Change, 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 change. There is a lot to be said for incremental change. But the piece that's missing with the leadership side is once they you know, write a memo and they put an operation in the field, they don't want to tweak it and change it because that almost feels like an admission of failure yeah. that it's not working. So nobody does that, so you just leave it running, even though everybody knows it's not really working as well as we intended. But there seems to be an unwillingness to make changes as they go. Absolutely right. And that is reflected in when you see operations publicised. They are publicised at the outset. They are seldom publicised at the end of the, uh, of the project, by which time, no doubt, management has changed and so it's not relevant anymore. But what is the mindset required of leadership? I mean, you're the psychology chap. What's the mindset required to be upfront and honest about the fact that we're going to try this and it's probably going to fail? That's not exactly a good starting mindset. No, but the internal one, before you actually need to go external on it, is to be required to make the predictions in the first place. There was one project, a PhD I supervised. What they did was to take plans of estates that had been built perhaps 10, 15 years ago. Public housing projects, yeah. 
ask them to, to say, if built like that, where would the crime be and what kind of crime would it be? Oh, that's a great way of doing it. Because I've often felt that people who build public housing projects should be made to live in them for a year afterwards. Absolutely. But the point is that the issue here is that the crime prevention officers were poor at predicting where the crime was actually going to happen on the basis of the plans. The important point for what we're talking about is not that finding, but rather the reaction that came to the presentation by the student concerned to crime prevention officers. They hated it. They hated to be shown to be wrong. And I think that's the first thing, a mindset which says, you predict, there's no shame in being wrong, but at least know that you're wrong and move in the direction which the wrongness suggests. And that is the essence of a Bayesian way of going about things, which is a characteristic of the people who, who are best, best at prediction. But in policing, what you end up is they will sooner double down on failure than change. Yes, and that's the problem, isn't it? I think it's where the majority of places are. I think there is an unwillingness to embrace doubt. Doubt about whether this is going to work, whether it's going to succeed. Because I think once you embrace more doubt, you're willing to embrace the idea of let's analyse it and sure. see if it's actually working or not. I see too many plans launched that just have the, uh, the charisma of the leader is just driving, this will work. And there's a lot of, you know, affirmative hand gestures and stern looks and PR announcements. This is going to be the thing that saves the day. And then you find that the analysis that shows it really wasn't as good as everybody hoped for gets buried. Yeah, and that's why the PR tends to occur at the beginning rather than at the end of projects. But doubt is the friend of humility, isn't it? Without doubt, you can't have humility. Hallelujah, sister. Thank you. Is humility an important quality for a police leader? Humility is an absolutely essential component in terms of his or her own performance, I think. You've talked about the crackdown consolidation cycle. What's that? Yeah, it's just something we tried a long time ago. One of the things we do know is if, if you do have a police operation of a conventional kind, it buys you a period of relative quietness. And that period, on average, is about twice as long as the crackdown itself operated. And it seems to me that if you're going to do crackdowns ever, then you should use the, the period of quietness to consolidate community relations. Just I've not seen those things seen as sequential. What happens with crackdowns is there's a, after the crackdown, you say, well, thank goodness for that. It's, it's, it's gone all quiet again. Yippee. I just think it's a wasted opportunity. I see a lot of initiatives where increasingly people are talking about defunding the police yeah. and putting more money into these long-term areas that have potential crime reduction value. I think a lot of them are untested, but, you know, we've got to try different things. But I do worry that what happens is in the meantime, you know, we often have policing solutions and those policing solutions make the problem go away in the short term. Yeah. And then we forget about the long-term stuff. Now, of course, the problem is we're investing in long-term solutions, but that doesn't give much people respite for the next 10 years while being victimised by more crime than they've ever had before right now. Which is why I think the hybrid solution of crackdown and consolidation, as we termed it, is a way forward. And it avoids the, the one which I think is really bad, which is crackdown complacency. And complacency in your book being? Being the notion that the problem has gone away because we've cracked down on it. We've merely suppressed it. Yeah. Suppression doesn't change the underlying conditions that are driving it. Exactly. 
That, by the way, is the tragedy of Kukult. Somebody once said to me that Kukult, they thought, was one of the most important crime prevention projects that they'd ever seen. Tell me the story, Kukult. The Kukult estate was the highest burglary area in Greater Manchester. We didn't have enough money to do lots of things. So we said, what's the group that we should start with? So we looked at people who'd been previously victimised, right? particularly in the recent past. So it really was just trying to reduce the amount of repeat victimisation. Yeah. So what we did was to do a, a sort of security hardware plus attention programme on those who had just been victimised. And it included what we called Cocoon Watch, which was taking the six immediate neighbours and engaging them and also offering them some of the security hardware that we provided. Going to people and saying, you've not been the victim of burglary, but one of your neighbours has, and so here's some additional help for you. Six such households for each burglary, yeah. What was the reception of people for that? It was terrific. We got seconded police officer, fabulous bloke, you would love him, called Dave Forrester. And the police in that area had vilified the Kukult estate as being one of the things that was said, they, they, they just nicked things off each other. And Dave went up there and talked to things and he'd come back after it. He said, there's great people up there. They're essentially really nice people up there. This, not, this is all bullshit. When I was a young cop at Hendon, the police college in London, and I got sent to H District in the East End, it used to be districts back then, and people were going, oh, bloody hell, H District. But after spending a bit of time in there, you know, tucked away in amongst all the, the thugs and the hoods and the criminals, there's a bunch of decent people just trying to get by. Absolutely. And I think one of the issues is that once you start getting into response policing, you're only ever seeing two types of people. You're either seeing offenders who are obviously stressed or you're seeing victims of crime obviously stressed. And it can leave you with this warped view that everybody's either a victim or a criminal. But most of the people in most places are just trying to get by, make a living, get the kids to school, you know. Absolutely so. Good. So anyway, so we cut Cocoon Watch. We got the rate of domestic burglary down to a third of its previous level. Pause for a moment there. That's not reducing it by a third. That's reducing it to a third. I mean, that's yeah. incredible. A 66% reduction in burglary. It's, just, it's almost be unheard of in most places. Um, the scepticism of many people led the Home Office to ask for a reanalysis of the results by Dave Farrington, actually. I've Dave, heard of him. Well, he's, he's, yeah, he's a somewhat obscure figure, but lovely bloke. I know, if he works a bit harder, publishes a couple more things, he might, you know, he might start to come to prominence. Well, to, he sends you the, his monthly publication list, does he? I've seen it, yeah. He sends it to me every month, and it's, as you imply, massive, massive, massive. I, he probably last slept in about 1986. I said to him, you know, have you got a clone in the, in the attic? Just gobbing out this stuff with you <laughs> so he did the reanalysis, and it was the things that we had changed that actually made the difference the Kirkholt project became famous the guy who took over after and he was in charge of the continuation of the Kirkholt project and I went up there and there were things not being done you know for example Cocoon Watch had fallen apart right. and he said oh we've, we've moved a long way past that he said and I thought oh, god will you prefer complicated things that fail to simple things that don't Right. What was the response of people in British academia to all of this? Because it seems horribly practical from most of their perspectives. Yeah. Well, you remember what the criminology texts were at that time? No, because I did geography. Okay. The new criminology, Taylor, Walton and Young. Critical criminology, as it would be called now. That was by far, I think, the most common textbook. Nothing against Marxism in a political sense, but it was a, a Marxist criminology exclusively. 
and inverted, if you like, the heroes and villains of criminal justice. Nothing changing about that then, really, right now. It seems to be where we are still. You think so? Yeah, I mean, critical criminology still reverberates with this notion of the cops are the bad guys and the, the villains are the unsung heroes. Exactly. Precisely so. I don't mind a discipline which says the limits and scope of state power is a thing that ought to be examined, but I find it uncongenial. What you need is something like environmental criminology now. It's great to talk about these abstract concepts, uh, often using language that I find, frankly, impenetrable. Yeah. I try to understand what it's all about, but honestly, it's, it, it seems to be more exercises in linguistics than any practical value. But at some point, it's just nice for people not to be shot as often. That's what one feels, yeah. What are the lessons that we really still have to learn in policing about implementing initiatives? The degree of inertia is huge. And the notion of growing ideas rather than having um, new ideas for each new management is a real problem. Killing the cubs strikes me as an absolutely major thing. Because lots of cops have lots of ideas. There are a lot of demotivated cops whose ideas are either ignored or discarded. What the Bayesian approach does is to allow a growth mentality to say, okay, if, it's, if it seems to be working, let's improve it rather than throwing it away. Yep. And that should not be affected by changes in management, which it currently is. But that, that kind of incremental improvement is tricky in a situation where people are all vying for promotion and rank and you know, coming to notice over and above you know, their peers. There is a huge amount of talent in frontline policing. That talent is not nurtured as it should be. If you take the role of police management to express a direction of travel for the force and the elements in it, the direction of travel is what should be defined by police management. Mm -hmm. And that consistent with that direction of travel, there's enough, if you like, talent and initiative in the front line of policing to actually make it happen. To see that sounds really unfeasible, but it's not unfeasible because there's so many cops who enter the profession with good ideas and, and thoughts about it. And its question is harnessing that really, I think, is the most important thing. I wonder about this. I, I wonder where the middle ground is, though, because, and I'm not thinking of a particular department, in many police departments, what you often get is you bring the outsider in to bring you all these initiatives and new ideas, and they kind of kill the cubs and start some stuff. Yeah, yeah. And that has flaws to it. And then you go, well, let's go with an insider who's come up through the department to bring some continuity. But what often happens with them also comes stagnation. So it seems that neither provides really what's looking for, which is a level of innovation, but also support for the existing strategies that are most likely to be effective. And I don't know how you find that. I think it's part of that is who are the outsiders you're bringing in? Right. The incentive structure currently for senior police management is not what you'd want it to be. Right. Your stagnation may be a result of the incentive structure which led people to be in their positions of authority or potential positions of authority on promotion. Right. You weren't promoted because you innovate. You were promoted because you were seen as a stable pair of hands who didn't really rock the boat. I wish I'd said it that way. Yeah, absolutely right. So stagnation will come with, with the second kind of promotion. Yeah. But there's plenty of people. I'm really impressed by lots of people. I'm also seeing them squashed. Yeah. and leave the job or whatever or say okay i'm not going to do anything yeah. proactive again again yeah there's a double whammy with that level of promotion system one it promotes not necessarily the right kind of people but two it forces the right kind of people out of the job we lose them either actually or motivationally yeah because you can be a uniform carrier for the next 20 years 
if you give up on the things that you think really will be a good idea. Cheery place to get to in this conversation. That's the cross that I've got to bear. I made more difference in the three years looking at pedestrian behaviour than I've done in the period since. That's the way it feels, definitely. It can't really feel that way. You're one of the most well-known scholars yeah, well, in crime prevention in the well, country. If you know, People know your name all over the place. Yeah, to tell you what, if you meet, you meet new cops, yeah, do they say, yeah, you did that stuff on repeat victimisation, I've done it, I've, I've thought about that way and in this context, whatever. You know what they say is, I've heard of you, and that's it. Right. I don't want them to get here, but I want, I want them to have the ideas that me or other people are in, in, involved with. I was doing some field work at a, uh, at a homicide scene in Philadelphia some years ago, and had a sergeant looked, at, looked me up and recognised who I was and said, I had to read your fucking book. So... <laughs> <laughs> So they've heard of you, at least it's not for that, right? <laughs> oh, dear. Well, that's one advance on, I've heard of you, I think. But So I, I was late to the conference that brought me over here. Yeah. And I know that uh, you and Scott Key, who we both know, yeah. gave a paper. So uh, what was the paper? Because yeah. I missed it. I was late. I had tickets for Tears for Fears. I mean, you can't blame well, me for that, right? Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> was it good? Where was oh, it? It was flipping excellent, yeah. Good. Yeah, they were great. So the paper, the first part of it is this document, which is the crime prevention strategy called Beating Crime. So you were part of this? No. Oh, okay. So the writing the strategy document. Oh, I never know. It's bollocks. That's the point. This is a strategy document that uh, Boris Johnson's yeah, been yeah. talking about. I'll right? send you a copy of it with pleasure. Beating Crime, strategy document, 50 pages long. No mention of repeat victimization, obviously. And two things got my goat to such an extent that I thought, I'm going to do a bigger job on this. They showed the graph of crime decline, yeah? Since the 1990s, yeah. Yeah, wow. That's, there's a point. The heading of it was, crime has been dropping for a long time now. Since between 2010 and 2020, it has fallen, yeah, X percent, whatever. Why 2010 rather than 1995? That's when the Conservative government came Exactly. In politics creeping in right then the other thing about it was they changed the scale on the graph yeah so the first data points were three years apart and then the rest were one year apart lying with figures lying with figures in fact I, one of the sl my slides was daryl huff's how to lie with statistics that's what i meant lying with statistics yeah and the effect of rescaling the the thing was to make the decline after the 1995 peak sharper and it to increase the proportion of the whole axis that was under conservative control. Right. So two mendacious manipulations of the first graph. Isn't this why we have things like tenure, so that people in academia can hold politicians more accountable for this kind well, of shit? Well, I'd like to think so. What is the challenge for academics to get out of, kind of go over the classic trope and the traditional cliche, to get out of the ivory tower? And how do we encourage people to try and stick their nose in and have more hand over policy you know and maybe it's this, the career stage i'm at and you know i've published a few papers and a couple of books and stuff like that and i'm thinking does the world need another peer-reviewed journal article in the bangladeshi journal of sheep stealing and criminology from jerry ratcliffe high impact journal oh great editorial board or is there a need to start being just a little bit more pernicious and sticking the noses into having more policy influence but i think the challenge is you know, most academics don't know where to start. So what they tend to do, I mean, I'm trying to write some op-ed pieces and maybe use the podcast, but I think most people just stay with what's safe, which is let's write another journal article. And that's the incentive system that academics get, isn't it, really? I mean, yeah. the number, like I say, the things I review now are so often done for 
gee whiz stats and whatever, they don't align with, with policing purposes, I don't think. Yeah. My example is, you know the stuff on power outages? No. There's some South African stuff and there's some, there's some American stuff. Power outages in an area increase robbery. Right. Right. And that's essentially the way they write it. The question is, if it does, how quickly does it, in what kind of areas, relative to the outage, which actually gives you a scheduling of how to restore power by type of area. Well, what a great idea. Where and when you should prioritise returning power, because it will reduce crime. Exactly. But in fact, they don't even think about what the decision could be that is contingent upon their decision to restore power in a particular schedule. So while everybody's happy writing introductions and lit reviews, we should really have mandatory so what sections at the end of journal articles. Absolutely. Or at the beginning of them, even better. Or both. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So maybe that's the role of where we should be. Which is, as soon as we all hit retirement, become the, uh, become the grumpy old bastards who put the world to rights. Well, I've got to the grumpy old bastard stage, but the question is, <laughs> but yeah, why not? And maybe universities should be spending more time rewarding people who actually take more of a policy focus get stuck in yeah and maybe we should also get more involved with fact-checking organizations as well yeah well on that cheery note ken it's been delightful to come and sit in your living room here and have a chat and be depressed but anyway it matches the weather because it's been bloody awful since i got here you know there was a part of me that came back to the country going oh you know there are so many things i miss you know decent pub good humor on the radio but this weather has just done it in for me this counts as summer to hell with this it's going to start raining later on today you know Thanks for that. My pleasure. Lovely to see you as ever. Likewise, mate. That was episode 57 of Reducing Crime, recorded in Stockport, UK in June 2022. A link to the Beating Crime report Ken roundly and rightly disparaged is at reducingcrime.com slash podcast, where you can also find transcripts of every episode. New episodes are announced on Twitter at underscore reducing crime, and my personal random ramblings can be found at Jerry underscore Ratcliffe. If you want new episodes handy whenever you need them, subscribe at Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple, or wherever you pod. Be safe, and best of luck. Mm-hmm.